Hey, Snohomish County, we're back with the podcast. I'm Sheriff Adam Fortney. I got a very special guest today. We're going to talk about something that's uh, law enforcement is unique, but uh, within law enforcement, there's several jobs that are extremely unique. And we have a special guest here to talk about one of those today. Uh, it's going to be a very exciting conversation, and I'm interested in a little bit uh, to learn a little bit more myself as well. So we have 38 year, yes, you heard that correctly, 38 year detective, uh, Jim Scharf with our Sheriff's Office, Major Crimes Unit and Cold Case Squad. And uh, you're here today and we're going to talk a little bit about you, your history, what you've been up to and what you're going to be doing in the next several years, which is kind of exciting. But anyway, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Sheriff. So let's start back in, we were talking before the show. I think you said you started at this position, one of these positions about 1970s, late 1970s. So you've been around a long time, a lot of historical perspective. Um, I'm interested to hear it. So let's start with that. How'd you get started here? Well, I've always wanted to be a police officer. And I grew up in Southern Illinois. I had two brothers that lived out here in the Northwest and I wanted to live out here. So I moved out here on uh, Memorial Day weekend of 1976 when I graduated from a two-year college back there. A um, year later, I hired on with the Snohomish County Jail. It was the sheriff's office then. Mm -hmm. And I worked in the county jail for seven months. And the person that replaced me, I ended up marrying uh, my <laughs> wife, Laura. Awesome. And she worked in the jail for 28 years before wow. she became disabled and had to retire. Okay. All right. So you start in the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. What's that kind of, what's that look like? So you started in corrections. Then did you change to the patrol side of the house after that? Well, I always wanted to be a police officer. Okay. So I tested everywhere I could test. Even in Dillingham, Alaska, wow. I sent an application. Okay. But uh, I ended up being hired by the city of Snohomish on... Uh, January 11th of 1978, and then I got married in October of 78 to Laura, and she became a reserve for the sheriff's office. So I ended up working for six and a half years in the city of Snohomish, and then I ended up testing the first lateral test that the sheriff's office gave and was hired uh, off of that list on July 2nd of 1984. Wow, I didn't know that was the first actual lateral test we had. I'm learning something new today, too. That's cool. Yes. So you've been doing this a long time. Yes. Been in public safety. Um, a lot of things have changed over the few decades. A lot of things changed in the last couple of years, if I'm being honest. Um, so what did it look like when you came into, uh, the, we'll start with, say, the sheriff's office, Snohomish PD, into law enforcement. Uh, what did you do when you started your career? Well, when I started in Snohomish, we had a 440 academy that we had to attend, but we didn't have to go uh, right away. You had like up to a year to go to the academy. So I worked patrol on the graveyard shift in Snohomish. Sounds for, familiar. For, yes. For three months. Okay. On a 10-man police department. Wow. And then they sent me to the academy. I uh, came out first in firearms and third in my class. And it was all uphill from there. Nice, nice. So then you lateral to the sheriff's office. What, what do we have you doing at that time? I ended up on patrol on Graveyard North. Uh, after my FTO period with Mike Miller, uh, I, for two weeks, 
they put me out on patrol by myself. And I worked North County, what uh, was the 11 area, which was everything around the city of Marysville. Uh, and then I worked the 13 area, which was everything around Lake Stevens. Yeah, I worked that one as well. Yep. And then uh, from there, I moved on and worked the 17 area. So on graveyard shift, my beat was from Everett or EB Island all the way out Highway 2 to, to Bering, the county line, and everything north of the Snohomish River. So I uh, patrolled from the county line on Highway 203 north of Duval all the way up to the north end of Lake Rosiger. So that was my beat area all the way out, and it encompassed index and everything east, all the small cities. I had East County radio on my car radio, but I only had North County radio on my portable. So when I got out of my car, when I got out of my car, none of the small town officers knew what I was doing. Oh, wow. That, that is something else. What, just out of curiosity, so when you're working graveyard shift back then with a huge area beat, um, how, many, how many partners did you have on graveyard shift at that time? Was there anyone else out there? I was the only officer. Wow. Ross McPherson covered that whole beat on swing shift, but he was a diehard cop, and he would always hang around until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and if you got a call and you didn't know where it was, You'd hear Ross pipe up and say, go down to this rock and turn left, and then there's a red house or a red barn, and you turn right, and, you know, he'd direct you in. Well, that that is something else. And most of us, everybody that starts in this profession starts in patrol, and that's kind of our roots. That's kind of where we, I, I would call it, growing up in this profession. So, uh, man, uh, thank you for your service uh, back then in patrol. That's awesome, but that's not where you stayed, though. Um, because we're, I want to talk a little bit about, I said there's some very unique aspects to law enforcement, and not only is being in, we call it major crimes, other people call it a homicide unit or things like that. It's a very uh, unique, I think, uh, uh, profession we have within law enforcement. And then you even took it a step further from that, and we'll, we'll get into that in, in a lot of detail, is the cold case squad. But talk about how you transitioned so you spent... Uh, years and years in patrol, and then you decided to test for major crimes? Is that how it happened? No, actually, uh, I told uh, the sheriff's office that I was interested in investigations. We had an incident that happened up in Arlington Heights where I got choked unconscious oh, wow. by a mental, Ill, mentally ill person. And we took him into custody, and he died. Okay. And we got sued in federal court for $18 million in 1986. Wow. And we won the case, but it affected me and my family. Oh, absolutely. So my wife preferred that I not work patrol anymore. So Sergeant Butch Davis brought me up into the Crimes Against Children's unit. Okay. So I worked Crimes Against Children for about six and a half years, and one of those years— I also worked adult rape cases. Okay. So from there, I applied to the major crimes unit, and I uh, tested number one and was brought in. There were two openings. Uh, one was when Pat Slack left to go to the city of Everett. Wow. 
and the other and the other opening was uh, from an officer that died that was working with Greg Renta, okay. Rick, Rick Blake. Okay. So Kevin Prentice couldn't decide which person to partner me up with, and I wouldn't choose. So they finally decided that I'd work with Joe Ward, which made me really happy because Joe Ward and Rick Bart were the two homicide detectives for like 20 years in Snohomish County. They handled every homicide that occurred for like the last 20 years. So I felt like I had a good partner that I could learn a lot from. Yeah. So just let the community kind of know. So you come into the homicide unit, and it's, it's kind of self-explanatory what that is. But what's that mean for you? What's that mean as you're a new detective, you're in now our, our major crimes unit, our homicide unit. What, what kind of cases are you, are you working at that time? Well, at that time, uh, I think they were just calling it, uh, they weren't calling it major crimes yet. It was like the assault okay. homicide unit. And we had, we were paired up into two-man teams. So it was me and Joe Ward, and then, then there were like three other two-man teams in there. And what we would do is when a homicide occurred, it would be assigned to, say, me and Joe. And Joe would take the lead on it. And I would do everything to help him, and everybody else in the unit would help until they got the fires put out. And then it was up to Joe and me to put it all together for the prosecutor. The next homicide that happened would go to a different team, and one of those two would be the lead. And it rotated around until it got back to Joe and I, and then uh, it was our turn, and I was the lead. And then it would rotate around, and then Joe was the lead. And that's how we did the homicide assault unit. And it's how we continue to do it when they changed the name to the uh, major crimes unit. Okay, so let's kind of lead into a little bit how we got into the cold case unit. And we just did a press conference, so I heard you talk about this, and I found it really interesting. So at some point, the form, our, our former sheriff, Rick Bart, becomes sheriff back then right. in, in the 90s and right. into the 2000s. And so he brought with him a wealth of experience from the homicide unit back then. Right. I think every sheriff brings kind of their personal passion. Is it safe to say that was his? Oh, yes. From, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so he decides... In, is it 2005? You can correct me if I have the dates wrong. Well, we'd been talking about it okay. for a couple of years before we finally did it because they sent me and uh, George Wilkins to Meridian, Idaho for a week's class on uh, how to start a cold case team, how to investigate it. Dave Rivers from uh, Florida came up and taught that class. So it was going to be me and uh, George Wilkins, and then it took so long that George was getting ready to retire. So uh, by the time they got around to being able to, to start the cold case team, it was February 2005, and they assigned me and David Heitzman because we were the two that volunteered to want to do that. Oh, wow. Okay. You're bringing up a lot of historical names here, and some I know and some I don't know, but I knew George. Um, and when we remember back in, when, uh, we switched from 1999 to 2000, it was a really big deal on new year's Eve and the sheriff's office, he was in homicide at the time, but they put everybody out in patrol cars. Yeah, George, they put was us in George was in mine. George was in mine. I still remember that was, that was awesome. Cause I was a new kid had about three years on and he's been doing this job forever. So we had it. We had a great time yeah. that night though. 
but these names are fun to talk about. That, that's cool. So, but anyway, so 2005-ish cold case starts as the full support of the current sheriff, Rick Bard at the time. Right. He hired me in 1996, by the way. So oh. I still remember that. That was fun. Um, so talk about cold case. That's, that's something I just very unique. Um, talk about what I, it, you're there since the inception, basically. Right. Yeah. Talk about that. So all of the people assigned to the major crimes unit had the cold cases divided up between us. And for a while, we had a supervisor that made you turn in a slip at the end of every month to say how much work you'd done on the case. Well, these slips were always blank for months and months and years and years. So there was pressure put on Rick Bart by all these families uh, of unsolved homicide cases that he'd worked to try to get somebody working on them because we didn't have time. So we had discussions between the whole unit that, hey, it's going to be more work on everybody uh, to assign people to work just the cold cases. So they agreed that, that they would suck it up and, and do it, and we agreed that we would continue to come out at, on the initial calls and help put the fires out uh, to get everything under control. And then at some point, um, cold cases kind of took a turn, I think, with the genetic ge genealogy and things like that and kind of morphed into something that you've pretty much, you know, our, our motto here is, is lead the way. But you, you literally have led the way with some of this cold case stuff in the entire nation. And that's why I think it's so unique. And I'm glad we're here to talk about this today. But can you kind of go into that a little bit about how that changed things well, for you? When I when we first started doing DNA cases, it was when I was in the Crimes Against Children's Unit. Okay. And then you needed a quarter-sized spot of blood to even get a DNA profile. And it worked down to where then it was a pinhead size. And, you know, recently they've been able to get DNA from dust, they call it. Wow. Um, and there's lots of tools that have come on board like the MVAC that they can use to suck DNA out of a, a larger item and then concentrate it down to see if there's enough there to, to get a profile instead of trying to swab it, you know, like was the way it was initially done. So what are some, talk about some cases the community might, uh, maybe if they haven't heard or they have heard, some, some big cases that, that you're excited to talk about today that you, well, you took I a, guess a major role in. Yeah, I guess you could say that the major case that I was involved in was Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenborg. Uh, they were killed in 1985. Uh, Jay's body was found underneath High Bridge, which was just west of the Honor Farm, the Monroe Prison's Honor Farm, southwest of Monroe, which was my beat area when it happened. I wasn't on duty. Uh, but it Jay was found on Thanksgiving morning by some hunters, and he'd been beaten and strangled and had a pack of cigarettes stuffed down his throat. Mm. And then his girlfriend uh, that came down to Seattle with him to pick up furnace parts for Jay's dad, her body was found uh, two days before that uh, up in Skagit County. She'd been raped and shot in the back of the head. Um, that was probably the most horrific crime that happened in Snohomish County since Charles Campbell. Mm. 
mm-hmm. killed Renee Wickland and her daughter and the neighbor. Wow. So it was a case that was profiled, well, it was profiled on Unsolved Mysteries by Robert Stack within the year because somebody was writing letters to the families claiming responsibility. Mm. Uh, I got interested in genetic genealogy because I was trying to identify a Jane Doe from 1977 that was found just north of Mariner High School up in uh, what used to be a Nike site that was overgrown with blackberries. David Roth had been arrested for killing her, but they never could figure out who she was. So I really got focused on wanting to try to identify her. And in working on that case, I met Barbara Ray Venter. And she told me that she could help me on that case, but she couldn't help me on a criminal case like Jay and Tanya's. So we were working on uh, an unidentified body in hopes to use genetic genealogy, but we didn't. E- they didn't even call it that right, then. Right. So the Jay and Tanya case, I think people will be interested. You at some point you ended up with that case. Um, yes. What, what ended up happening with that? Well, actually, uh, Jeff Miller came to me. He was the captain in oh, investigations, yeah. and he came to me one day and he said, "Hey, Jim, I was down in Tacoma. I learned about this new tool. It's called." Uh, phenotyping, uh, Parabon Nanolabs does it, and it sounds like a really cool thing because they can take a DNA profile and make a composite sketch of what the person might look like, and it gives them their hair color and eye color and that kind of thing. He says, I want to use it on a case because it's only $3,600. So find me a case. Well, I had two or three cases that were high priority, but Jay and Tanya's was probably the highest. Sure, yeah. So I got a hold of Lisa Collins at the state crime lab, and I asked her if this was something that she had uh, more DNA extract left over that we could use. And since the DNA was left on Tanya, we had to get Skagit County on board to give us permission to send the DNA off to a lab. So uh, we ended up going in halves with Skagit County, and they got the DNA from the lab, the extract, and sent it off to Parabon. And they made up a composite sketch. Well, it gave us a lot of information to go on, and since it had already been profiled on Unsolved Mysteries, we had 230 suspects on our list in our files from all over the country from tips that were called in. So Joe Dunn and I and the Skagit County detectives and a detective from uh, Canada where Jay and Tanya came from uh, all started working on all these people to see if this composite and this information of what this guy was looked like and his background of being Northwest European descent was in the files. So we we spent almost a year doing that before uh, it was time that Jeff Miller was gonna retire. So I'm like, well, wait a minute, we gotta do this news release 
on this phenotyping before Jeff leaves. And about the same time we were gearing up to do the press conference, Barbara Ray Venter contacts me and says, hey, I think now we can do this on a criminal case with this genealogy. And I was like, well, I'm in the middle of this now. She says, well, you need to get a new sample sent to another lab and get a SNP profile instead of the STR profile. And that's what we need to, to start going moving forward with it. So I had to put that off until we did the press conference before Jeff Miller retired. And we had Parabon Nanolabs come out, uh, Steve Armand Trout, to do the news release when we showed the composites of what the suspect might look like at age uh, 20, uh, 25, 45, and 65. Okay. We had those composites made up. Well, we ended up getting about another 120 tips in of, hey, that guy looks like the guy that bought a sandwich in front of me at the deli mm -hmm. today, or that looks like the guy that cuts grass down the street. It wasn't any tip that said, well, we saw a guy like that driving Jay's van, you know. So it really... I could see that it was causing more work for us. So I went immediately back to Barbara and said, okay, we need to figure out how to do this genealogy mm -hmm. stuff with this case instead of pursuing all these tips that I realized weren't going to go anywhere. Did it work? Well, we got to talking, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. If Parabon Nanolabs gave us this information to make a composite and they know air color and eye color then it must be the same kind of dna profile that barbara wants us to get to do the genealogy so i contacted parabon and said if this is if you got a snip dna profile i want to give it to barbara because she's going to upload it to gedmatch for me and we're going to match to relatives and then build a family tree to figure out who it is and Para, I the guy I talked to at Parabon said, well, we need to check with our uh, legal sure. advisor before we can start giving up profiles. So three days later, they caught the Golden State Killer. Oh, wow. And I got an a email from Barbara Ray Venter saying, Jim, they caught the Golden State Killer today, and I was behind it, but I don't want anybody to know that. So <laughs> wow. here she was keeping it a secret from me that she was already doing genealogy okay. on a case. Wow. So the next day I talked to Steve Armantrout at Parabon, and he's like, well, the floodwaters broke yesterday. He says it's something that we've always wanted to do. So you know, I've got the profile you want, and I want to upload it to GEDmatch for you. And we hired C.C. Moore, the best genealogy and genealogist in the world, to work for our company. So he said, if you give me written permission to upload it, then we'll have a profile and tell you who did it by next week. Wow. And I'm like, well, then let's get let's get on the stick. Do you need it on letterhead? He said, no, just send me an email. So I sent him an email, and the next day I didn't hear anything. So I called him, and he said, it's in the works. 
Well, that following Monday, so Friday he tells me it's in the works. The following Monday, I'm out walking my dogs in the backyard, checking my emails, and I've got one from Steve saying, give me a call. So I'm out in the backyard calling Steve, and he says, Jim, we've narrowed it down to one guy. And I'm like, I can't believe this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking maybe you're going to narrow it down to like 40 people and you're going to start building trees. Mm -hmm. He said, no, C.C. Moore built the trees on Saturday and came up with with one guy. Wow. And I'm like, well, what can you tell me about him? Well, he had an address in Woodenville. Really? Well, (laughs) that's only a few miles from the high bridge. So this sounds pretty good. What's his name? William Earl Talbot II. That name's never been in that file. I've got to figure out who this guy is. Well, I had a doctor's appointment that day, so I went into Everett and went to the doctor and then came up to the office and ran the name and found out that, yeah, he had a couple of addresses in Woodenville area. So we got our narcotics team together to follow him around and he he pulled up to a traffic light in Seattle at uh, West Marginal Way and South Spokane Street which was only like a mile away from where Jay and Tanya were probably abducted oh wow and he stops at the light opens the door of his semi truck and a coffee and a paper coffee cup falls out so our guys swoop down on that and recover it and bring it to me. I took it up to Lisa Collins, and she said, by tomorrow I should know if it's a single male profile on this or not. I said, well, they told me they're only 80% sure that it fell out of that truck because they didn't see it fall. They just found it in the street. So I'm going to have them follow them around some more. Mm-hmm. So the next day they followed him around uh, to a little cafe down in Buckley, and he went in and had lunch, and they contacted the waitress and said, when you bust his table, will you not throw his stuff away? So she saved the stuff and gave it to him. They gave me that. I took it up to Lisa, and I said, Lisa, this stuff we know touched his mouth, so um, this we know is is from him. And she said, well, can you hang around for 15 minutes? have coffee or something? I said, sure. So 10 minutes later, one of the other scientists brought up a piece of paper and handed it to her and smiled. And Lisa turned to me and handed me the paper and said, Jim, it's him. Wow. And when I say that, I still get tears in my eyes from that moment when that happened. Because it was like, this is amazing. Yeah. We finally caught this guy. Yeah. And I screamed and <laughs> <laughs> said, we got him. Good, yeah, absolutely. So, so I called my sergeant and told him. I asked him if I, can you give me permission to call the captain? So I called Jeff Miller. He was up on his roof <laughs> and told him. And he says, well, you got to call Rick Bart. Oh, no, I said, can I call, can I call the sheriff? So I called the sheriff, and the sheriff told me, you got to call Rick Bart. So I said, I don't have his number. So he gave it to me, and I called Rick Bart, and he's like, I don't believe it. 
He said, Jim, that case has bothered me every day of my life since I processed Jay's crime scene. What they did to him was horrible. You know, he says, I can't believe it. So I got a hold of Skagit County, and we planned the arrest. We did the takedown uh, three weeks after we had his name. We wow. had him in custody. And while I got him in the back seat of the car, um, I'm, we're driving up the freeway. Um, gosh, I want to th- Luke, Luke, uh, Robinson. Yeah. Was Luke Robinson. Yeah. He was my main man on okay. that case that I kept in touch with for all the surveillance and everything. Oh, yeah, for sure. So Luke was transporting him, mm-hmm. and we turned the radio up in the back seat, and I got on the phone, and I called Tanya Van Kylingborg's brother, and I told him, hey, we got him in custody. John couldn't believe it. And he says, where is he? I said, he's in the back seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I called well, Jay's sister and talked to her her husband and told them the same thing we got him in custody he's in the back seat that is that's amazing within three weeks yeah we had him after what was it 31 years wow yeah what what's it like when you're talking to these families and in some cases in this case i think you said 31 years time had gone by yeah and ones we just got done talking about a little bit ago 40 plus years what's some of the reactions from the family members that get this this type of news from you? Well, I think they're just in awe. It's like it's unbelievable, you know. Really? You know, they want to know, what what more can you tell me? This is amazing. Yeah. You know, you didn't forget about us. That's, that's the first thing. You know, you got to keep your investigations a secret a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, you know, I kept in touch with John Van Kylenburg a lot. So... He knew what was up, you know, in this case. But a lot of the cases, it's just a call out of the blue. Yeah. Hey, we finally identified the suspect that killed your daughter or your sister. When so much time is involved in some of these cold cases, what's something you would want those family members, uh, those family members to know? Um, I think you, what you, I really like how you described it a little bit earlier where you, you mentioned uh, always have hope or something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Is always always have hope okay. because, first of all, you don't know what the police department is doing on your case. Mm-hmm. You know, you can contact them and keep in touch with them and find out if they're still working on it or not. But we're not going to give you very many details of what we're learning. Uh, we'll just try to reassure you that it it isn't forgotten about but if we're not hearing from the families we just try to you know lay low and keep silent and work on the case until we can get it solved and then when we've got it solved then we get a hold of the families and say you know this is what we know and if the person's alive you know our plan is to arrest them we usually give them a little advanced warning uh, you know, when we've got them identified and we know we're going to arrest them. Okay. But we don't try to tell them exactly when because yeah. you never know the guy's going to be know. there or not. Yeah. So you're doing this cold case stuff, and that was a fantastic example that you just gave. Thank you for sharing that. And then uh, talk, kind of talk about where you're kind of plan on going from here. 
Um, what are you looking forward to? Uh, that, that type of thing. Well, I already kind of gave it away at the beginning. You're getting ready to retire. I got to ask you one specific question though. Is it true that you were ready to retire about three years ago? Yes. Why, why'd you stay in the game? My, my plan, my whole life or my whole career was not to get promoted, to work longer and be an investigator and just put in more years so that I can get a decent retirement that way. Yeah. So my plan was always at age 63 and a half, I would retire and I would be on Cobra for 18 months and then switch over to Medicare mm -hmm. without having to shop around for medical insurance because my wife's disabled and sure. I'm basically more working for medical insurance mm -hmm. and the job that I love. Yeah. So that was always my plan until 2018, a year before that, when we caught William Earl Talbot mm -hmm. for killing Jay and Tanya. And I realized that we have the best tool ever that's come along in the world for solving cases where you have DNA evidence. We had five cases that had DNA evidence left at crime scenes, and we had uh, 10 or 12 unidentified bodies that we needed to try to identify. So I realized that there's no way that I was going to retire on uh, June 30th of 2019. But on June 29th, 2019, we got a conviction of William Earl Talbot II for killing Jay and Tanya. Wow. So instead of retiring, we got this conviction that was, you know, one of the best in my career. And I just ran from that, and we ended up catching uh, Terrence Miller for killing Jody Loomis. And then we identified uh, the guy that killed um, Melissa Lee, but I was, I was busy with my cases so uh, scott fenter our sergeant gave that case to brad wolvotny mm -hmm. and i told him i said brad i think this is a case where you're going to have to get a confession to solve it well brad dug into the evidence and found more dna wow. that we didn't know we had and he was able to put the case together and, and make the arrest without getting a confession so that case was solved. And then the other two cases we've solved and the suspects are dead. And from there we moved on to the unidentified bodies and working with Jane Jorgensen, the investigator from mm -hmm. the medical examiner's office has been phenomenal. She is a real go-getter and she taught herself how to do genealogy and has solved, I think, three of our cases by herself wow. doing the genealogy work without passing it on to one of the three genealogists that I've worked with on the other cases, which was Barbara Ray Venter and C.C. Moore and Deb Stone. Okay. All great people. Oh, yeah. None of this would happen. All of your efforts are just so much appreciated. Um, but I got to ask you, so are you serious this time about retirement? <laughs> Is it going to happen? Well, I <laughs> turned my paperwork into the did. state of Washington <laughs> and... They're telling me I'm going to get a pay raise. A pay raise. <laughs> Let's not go down that road today. That's a whole other conversation. That's good, though. A well-earned well, one, by we the don't, way. We don't pay enough here. So. Amen to that. And we're working on that, too. <laughs> good. Um, <laughs> uh, 
So you mentioned, I think people are going to want to know, because you are, and I truly mean this personally for me, you're an, you're an institution here. You have truly led the way in this stuff and made a difference for so many families out there, so many crime victims. Um, we're just so appreciative of what you've done. But you're leaving. You're, you're retiring. But you're going to stick around, right? Yeah, I'm, what is that? People might not know what that means. I'm what? not really leaving. Okay. Uh, I asked you if you would let me keep my computer mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you would, I would continue to be a volunteer for the cold case team and get my old case reports caught up. That I've, <laughs> I keep getting distracted with solving all these other cases, so I can't <laughs> get to distraction. the I can't get to the ones and get them documented that didn't get solved. So I need to at least be fair to the sheriff's office and get my work done. You've been more than fair. And I hope my answer was, yes, you can have a computer and whatever else you want if you're willing to stick around and do some volunteer work. So we will absolutely take you up on that offer. And then the next question I know people are going to want to know, so you're going away, is there a replacement for you? Are we going to keep doing this work, that type of thing? Yes, there's a good replacement. Who is it? It's Brad Movatney. All right. He's already solved the Melissa Lee case, which is a cold case. And he's working on several other ones. And he's consults with me when he needs information. And sure. I'm always available to help him out and catch up on all of my information. He, he says I got a mind like a steel trap. So <laughs> hopefully I don't, I don't lose that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. So we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit here. I want to do something a little bit different. We usually do... You know, kind of, we do retirement stuff all the time, and it's usually semi-private. But, but you're here today, and so 38 years of service. We talked about some of your service over the the decades to Snohomish County. It's 38 years. That doesn't happen every day. So thank you on behalf of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office for your 38 years of service and your continued to to volunteer your time here. I just I can't thank you enough. Um, and and that goes on behalf of like I said before, all of the crime victim families and things like that. And they're wondering about their case. We want them to have hope. We want them to know that we are, we work very, you work very diligently on, on these cases. So um, we're very thankful for that, but I want to give you your plaque while we're sitting here today. So there's that. That's for you, sir. Thank you. You're going to carry around one of these. Let everybody see that. That's retirement badge and ID card. Wow. So after 38 years, um, thank you, sir, for your years of service. Thank you for doing this today. Um, again, from you know, from my time here, I've got 25 years in here, but that doesn't even pales in comparison to the work you've done here. So I'm just so thankful that you're willing to sit down today, share with the community a little bit more about what you and what you've done here. And is there just anything else you want to end on, sir? No, it's just been a real pleasure okay. working at this office with all the people. They've been wonderful. Uh, and to be able to help the citizens of Snohomish County, that's, you know, that's been something that really gives me a lot of pleasure to know that there's there's people that have answers now. Yeah. yeah. And everybody in the major crimes unit works super hard. Mm-hmm. They're some of the hardest working people around that I know of. And outside of that, I really don't get around the agency <laughs> enough and That's I probably okay. don't even know 90% of our deputies that's anymore. Okay. It's changed a lot over the last few years, but that's okay. <laughs> New kids are still coming in and wanting to do the job. So that's a good thing, but it is a good we want to celebrate you today and thank you so much. I, I can't, I mean, we could end on what you just said, cause that was perfect, but uh, just thank you. Thank you for your years of service. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. All thank right. you.